You're listening to a sermon preached at University Presbyterian Church in Seattle, Washington. For more information, please visit our website, theupc.org. Good morning. Well, this is a first for me. First time I've been able to be in this sanctuary with all of you without sneaking around. First time I've ever worn a robe while I preach, so if I look a little... David Hallgren loaned me his robe. It's, it's a little, you know, gives me a little breathing room. I want to thank you uh, for being with me today and listening to the word of the Lord through my voice. I want to thank George for opening up his pulpit um, and allowing me to share with all of you. This is a weekend of firsts. It has been a long journey to find my way here and to find my family's way here. Um, there's been lots of firsts and it's an exciting time. Last night we had the privilege of visiting one of your establishments uh, called Red Mill Burger. And apparently it was rated one of the top 20 places in the U.S. to get a burger before you die. And as I was laying in, in bed last night, jet lag still from waking up at four in the morning, I looked up to the ceiling and I thought it's probably not rated one of the top 20 places to eat at before you preach a sermon the next day. But nonetheless, I rest assured and they rest assured uh, my own uh, questions that you're not voting on the sermon today, so I won't worry about that. The title of this sermon is called Wrestling for a Living. And I chose to follow along the path of this series to encourage the continuity, even though that I was coming from the outside in. And as I thought about wrestling for a living, what does that mean? And I'm not really a wrestler, although this robe, you know, hides my uh, apt physique. I would not count myself a wrestler in junior high. In fact, I have uh, memories of being given three minutes to sort of, you know, put on your tight Shorts and your and your gym clothes that are size too small and being given three minutes to wrestle with one of my classmates and I remember more so not wrestling than anything just trying to avoid uh, being being you know tangled up and, and pinned and so I tend to avoid wrestling at all costs so when I the idea of wrestling for a living that didn't lead me to a place where I imagined myself in tights with middle-aged men with long hair and a sweaty ring. In fact, as I thought about wrestling for a living and I thought about the place we are at in our economy and how we consider how God leads, leads our lives, the true wrestling we have is how we view the path that God has placed on our lives and upon our families' lives. And it's not always easy. We teeter-totter between understanding God's will and our own efforts. And today... I'd like to explore an aspect of that type of wrestling with you. And I believe that type of wrestling is clearly illustrated and illuminated in the text that we have today. Allow me to read from the Word of God for you. Genesis 31, 1 through 9. Now Jacob heard that the sons of Laban were saying... Jacob has taken all that was our father's. He has gained all his wealth from what belonged to our fathers. And Jacob saw that Laban did not regard him as favorably as he did before. 
Then the Lord said to Jacob, Return to the land of your ancestors and to your kindred, and I will be with you. So Jacob sent and called Rachel and Leah into the field where his flock was and said to them, I see that your father does not regard me as favorably as he did before. For the God of my father has been with me. You know that I've served your father with all of my strength, yet your father has cheated me and changed my wages ten times. But God did not permit him to harm me. If he said, the speckled shall be your wages, then all the flock bore speckled. And if he said, the striped shall be your wages, then all the flock bore striped. Thus God has taken away the livestock of your father and has given them to me. The word of the Lord. Will you pray with me? God of grace. May the words of my mouth and the meditations of my heart be acceptable and pleasing before you. I ask you now to open the ears of your people, of your children, as we listen. As we open our hearts to the move of your spirit. Be with us this day, that in our worship we may glorify you. Praise in the name of your Son, Christ Jesus. Amen. This text is but a mere nine verses of the larger section that deals with this story. And I believe that within this text there are aspects that point to the larger story. And as opposed to reading the larger section of the whole thing, I'm actually going to summarize some of the areas for you. And as a way of a framing device... To understand what's going on and to think about what's going on and to consider it for our own lives, I want to put it in the, in, the, in the framework of four questions. What is happening? I'd like to describe for you what's in the text, some of the aspects of it. Then I'd like to ask, why is it happening? From our perspective, what are some of the elements that are playing in Jacob's life? as he deals with his own struggles and wrestling with what he's going to do for a living and how he's going to provide for his family. Then third, I'd like to ask, how ought we consider this text? Outside of our human perspective, there's a way that we can approach this text that we can see it with godly eyes. And finally, what relevance does it have for our lives? Where does it make a difference For those of you who have your Bibles open, please follow along in the, in the passage. I'm going to begin summarizing in verse thir- or chapter 30, verses 25 through 40, 34. What happens is, is Jacob's been working for Laban for about 20 years. I'm sure many of you know the story that Jacob came to Laban and said, I'd like to marry your daughter. And he says, give me seven years of labor. And Jacob says, sure, no problem. And he works for seven years. And then Laban plays the old switcheroo. Good thing that we don't do that today. Wouldn't fare well. And he ends up marrying the wrong daughter. And Laban says, oh, seven more years and I'll give you the daughter you really wanted. And so for 14 years he worked for his two wives. And then he continued on after that to around 20 years. He'd been working for Laban. He didn't have his own flock. He was tending, his own, he was tending Laban's flock watching out for Laban's prosperity. 
But earlier in chapter 30, verses 1 through 24, we see a, a dueling battle between Rachel and Leah trying to bring offspring into Jacob's family. And they end up with enough for a baseball team. And about that time, Jacob says, it's, it's probably time for me to move on. I need to provide for my own family. And so he goes to Laban and he says, Laban, I'd like to be released. I've been with you for 20 years. Can you let me go with my family and my children and begin and return to my homeland and begin on my own again? And Laban says, yes, I know that actually that... And he actually cites through divination, which is a sort of fortune telling in, in biblical times. And not everyone was serving the, the God Yahweh. So Laban sort of figured out, yeah, well, and it probably didn't take a rocket scientist to figure out that Jacob was doing a really good job. And he had increased Laban's prosperity many fold. And so what we have is Laban realizes he claims through divination that Jacob actually has been a bonus, an asset in his, his own fortune. So he says, well, what can I give you? What can I send you with? And Jacob says, I'll make it simple. You give me the speckled animals in your flock. You give me the ones with spots and the ones with stripes. The ones that look peppered. I'll take those as my own. And it wasn't as if he was just going to take them and he was going to take off. He was going to take them and he was going to continue to, to care for them and tend them. And as they multiplied into a, a point where there was enough for him to actually depart. And Laban said, that sounds like a pretty good deal. And so they shook on it. So what we have is we have a deal. We have a deal between Jacob and Laban. But as Jacob exits his tent, I'm imagining he turns the corner to head back. He's excited. He's going back out to tend the flock. Laban turns over to one of his sons and says, quickly. Go and remove all of the animals that are speckled, that are striped, that aren't solid, white. And take them in a three days journey so that when Jacob goes out to the flock and he's trying to breed them to produce more, that he'll end up with all white and his flock will be nothing. The irony of this text, as we move on into the next section, as we push past the deal that they made and we move into the deception that we see in this passage. For those of you who are following, in verse 35 through 43, when Jacob went out into his field, we can only imagine what he must have been thinking. Well, yesterday, there were a lot of black sheep. There were some speckled goats. Today, they don't appear to be here. He knew what Laban was up to. He knew that Laban was trying to trick him. So what does he do? Well, the text tells us that he takes some strips of poplar and almond and, and, and he peels them and he puts little chips in them and he makes them speckled. And as the animals come down to the water, he lays them in front of them, and, and as they're, because they come down, and what they do is they breed when they're, they're sort of, you know, they're cruising around, they're walking, but when they go to the actual water, they're sort of hanging out. They're being refreshed. And so then they breed. And so he 
thought if he placed these speckled sticks and these striped sticks in front of them, the idea was that they would produce offspring that were speckled and striped. Now, to us in the 21st century, we're kind of thinking, hmm, Jacob, that's kind of kooky. That's not really going to work. We understand that chromosomes don't work that way. Just because you have two people with brown eyes or green eyes doesn't mean your kids are going to produce that way. There are recessive and dominant genes, and yes, we are all smarter than Jacob was. But he knew that when they went to the watering hole, that they bred. And it was actually a Canaanite ritual, or we might even say a Canaanite superstition, that if you placed speckled and spotted and striped objects in front of your cattle, that's what they would produce. So what we have here is Jacob buying into a Canaanite ideology that says we can produce the type of flocks we need just by placing these little magic sticks in front of them. But as the text tells us, it worked. So as a reader, we read this text and we say, well, I'll be darned. I didn't know that. I don't know if anyone breeds dogs, but you might try that later. So we see the deception and the realization of the deception and what Jacob does to overcome that. But over time, Jacob used his knowledge of herding to produce a stronger flock. The speckled and the striped cattle and the sheep and the goats and all the animals produced. And over time, Jacob had a really strong flock. He had strong cattle. And Laban's who were left behind were weak. And as the years passed, Laban's sons began to realize this. And they went to their father and they said, I think Jacob's up to something. I think he's swindling you, father. And this ultimately makes Laban furious. He invites David, or Jacob back and he says, what are you doing? You're cheating me. And Jacob said, that's not quite the case. He says this, and this is his explanation. God said to Jacob, return to the land of your ancestors and your kindred, and I will be with you. And I will be with you. So Jacob sent and he called Rachel and Leah into the field where his flock was. And he said to them, I see that your father does not regard me as favorably as he did. But the God of my father has been with me and I've served your father with my strength. Yet your father has cheated me and changed my wages ten times. And he realizes that they need to go. And Leah and Rachel say, yeah, you know, you're right. He hasn't been good to us. Let's take your flock and let's go. But the interesting part about this passage, this dissension in Genesis 31, 1 through 9, is that it's the first time in this passage that Jacob actually acknowledges that God has been a part of this process. That God had his hand in these flocks, in the, in, in the reproduction of these flocks. And so 
Before 31, we see Jacob manipulating the situation by his own cunning, by his own skills. But when confronted about it, Jacob says, no, actually, this is God's hand. This is God's hand. And he explains it by way of a dream in verses 10 through 16 of chapter 31. He said, the angel of the, of the Lord said to me in a dream, Jacob, and, he, and I said, here I am. And he said, look up and see that the goats that leap on the flock are striped and speckled and molted, mottled, sorry, that I have seen that all Laban is doing to you. And I am the God of Bethel, where, the anointed, where you anointed a pillar and made a vow to me. Now leave this land at once. And he goes on to say, all the property that God has taken away from our father belongs to us and our children. And now they were going to go. Jacob finally acknowledges to his wives, wives that God was at work. And if we jump ahead, we see the final proclamation in verse 42. And we ask, what is happening after a hot pursuit by Laban? David confronts him and says this, If the God of my father, the God of Abraham and the fear of Isaac had not been on my side, surely now you would have sent me away empty-handed. God saw my affliction and the labors of my hands and rebuked you last night. We see this declaration that Jacob is saying, It is God who released me from this captivity. It is God who gave me this flock. We see not even an ounce of the fact that Jacob is claiming to use Canaanite techniques or his own skill, his own natural proclivity to secure this flock. So how are we supposed to interpret this? Why is this happening? For all intents and purposes, this is somewhat of a soap opera. It's deception, it's trickery. People sneaking around, doing stuff, people whispering to the side. It's quite exciting. We have different characters. We have Laban, who's the villain, who we just don't like. He's the guy in the movie who we just say, man, he's just a bad person. Not only does he enslave Jacob over a 20-year period, but when it comes time for Jacob to say, hey, it's time for me to go home. Allow me to take my family, and give me some livestock to go start my, on my own. Laban has the audacity to try to steal from him and to trick him. Jacob, our hero, we like Jacob. He's a bit of a bumbling fool at times, as we've seen, and I'm sure over the last few years we've seen him make mistakes. But he's a hard worker. For 20 years, he worked for Laban. And so there's a side of us that says, wow, Jacob really did the right thing. That's not wrong for him to want to go off, and it's not. It was time for him to return. The Lord sent him an angel and said, you need to return. But at the same time, as we look at him and as we consider his character, we're left with a little bit of confusion. In chapter 30, we see that he used a certain Canaanite means. He used his own uh, knowledge of shepherding to sort of bring about this. 
But yet then he claims when confronted that it was God. Is he covering up what he did? Is he just trying to say that because it has more authority? Would it sound like trickery to Laban if he said, I laid striped sticks in front? How do you like that? No, he appeals to the Almighty and says, this is God's will, Laban. You didn't do what was right for 20 years, and now God is blessing me. But we're left with saying, yay, the hero was blessed. It's a happy ending. But yet we're also left with some unsettling aspects about this. Did Jacob's superstitious practices really pay off? Or was it God? Should Jacob even have been trying that? Or should Jacob just have turned to God and originally and said, God of Abraham and Isaac, deliver me from this. I've been tricked again. Or did he rely too much on his own means? His own skills? We've got to remember that these rituals were actually not that uncommon. The law had not been given, you know, the Ten Commandments and Moses, quite yet. So, morality, holiness, those were things that were not quite set in stone. No pun intended. And so they were trying to figure things out. What we do see is Jacob's willingness to acknowledge God's hand in this. Well, how ought we view this text? We see it in two parts. One with the magic sticks and the hard work and the other with God's hand. And we're left with saying, is it by our own works or is it by God's divine intervention that we are called to a living? We've got to wrestle with this. Where's the balance? Do we serve a God who is over all things? Who orchestrates everything? That doesn't mean we should just sit back and relax because we see in the passage that Jacob still used what he knew. He bred stronger animals with stronger animals and produced stronger flock. But yet he also relied on some things that probably wouldn't be have considered godly or in accordance with God's will. Perhaps it's only when we stop looking at the trees and the small aspects of this story and take that forest perspective and distinguishing that forest from the trees or the balcony perspective for those of you up there. And when we look at this text and we think about it from the forest view, we realize, well, there's more to the story. Jacob actually did do a lot. He had a lot of trickery going on. He tricked his brother out of his birthright. He put hair on his arms and tricked his father, which I still am baffled at how Isaac, you know, fell for that. It says more about Esau, I guess, than it does anything else. But it's only when we look at the entirety of Jacob's life that we realize that God was working in Jacob from the very beginning. 
when he was in his mother's womb, God had chosen Jacob. And in fact, in Romans 9, 11 through 16, it says this, even before they had been born or had done anything good or bad, so that God's purpose of election might continue, not by works, but by his call. She was told, the elder shall serve the younger. As it is written, I have loved Jacob, but have hated Esau. What then are we to say? Is there injustice on God's part? By no means. For he says to Moses, I will have mercy on whom I have mercy, and I will have compassion on whom I have compassion. So it depends not on human will or exertion, but on the God who shows mercy. Jacob wasn't blessed because of his superstitious ideology or because he knew how to produce a strong flock. He was blessed by nothing short of God's divine will. As I considered the significance of this passage and how it fell in line with my preaching this message to you today, it struck me how appropriate it was in some ways that this was the text. And many of you have heard me say, or actually none of you have heard me say, some of you have heard me say, but many of you, if you've read the flyer, had read it there. I'm going to take a drink now just because I have it. And it looks awkward if I don't. that I've seen God's fingerprints on this process. And most of the time, if you see a glass that has lots of fingerprints, it's kind of gross. If you sat down in a restaurant and your glass had lots of fingerprints, you should send that back. <laughs> you don't want that one. But in this case, to see God's fingerprints on a process, it is truly humbling. Because you know that God was working and God was moving. And it will be very easy, as you vote on me in a short while, to say, well, by all, by all human standards, it makes sense. It adds up. The committee did their job. They did a fa fabulous job. They searched out candidates. They got one they liked. It would make sense from my side to say, well, UPC has a legacy in youth ministry. And it's my field of expertise. And so we just match up really well. And we've all worked hard. And we've come to this place. And it all just makes sense. And so it's easy to take God out of the picture. And say, well, you know what? It makes sense. It works. Nice job, PNC. Congratulations, Jason. But I think when we do that... We rob God of something that is His rightful due. It is not because of what you have done or the legacy that your youth ministry has or that this church has. It is not because I've studied and worked with young people and proved myself in this field that I am here and that I stand before you today. It is nothing short than by the grace of God that I stand before you. God's fingerprints have been all over this process. 
Many of you don't know that it was only February 20th that I sent an inquiry to Julie Lorton and said, Hey, my name is Jason Santos and I'm wondering if you all are still accepting PIFs. Less than three months from inquiry to today, I'm standing before you. And I am humbled to be a part of this process. And as I reflect upon my own wrestling for a call and where God might place me and where God would place my family, I'm reminded of what a joy and privilege it is to see God's fingerprints. So as a community of faith, what are we to do with this? We often tack on God's will be done on how we view life. God's will be done. God's with us. This was God. When great things happened, this was God. God was there. Bravo, God. And I want to challenge you today. When you look at this passage, don't think of Jacob as just communicating that God had his hand upon his family and his life. Because he was being confronted and someone was asking for a testimony of his faith. But to remind ourselves that in our wrestling between what it means to exert ourselves by our own efforts and to trust in a living, breathing, loving God, that we are called to turn our eyes upward in all that we do and say, thank you, God from point A to point B, you were in the driver's seat. This passage ultimately reminds us that despite our human efforts, those that are based both in superstition, that if we do the right things, that we'll have a great life. If we get the right test scores, if we put the right things on our resumes, if we meet the right people, if we're in the right place at the right time, those are human ideas and concepts and aspirations. Ultimately, we serve a God who orders our steps. Jacob had a sense in the end to name God as the source of his path. Do we? Pray with me. God of Providence, I thank you that I'm here today. I thank you that you have allowed my family to join this community, hopefully. That you have guided UPC along this journey, along this path for decades. I thank you for the community of faith and the testimonies that are represented here in this sanctuary even now. And I ask that you would change our view, our vantage point of our lives. And, in, and as we face uncertain times and we say, God, what is in store for us? What can I do to secure my livelihood, to move forward in this life? That we might be reminded that you are overall. And that you are guiding our footsteps. 
and that we are subjects to your mercy. Give us a spirit of joy today as we look to the future and give us the assurance that we are your children and that you love us. We pray all of these things in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Ghost. Amen. For more UPC audio or to find out about service times, visit us at upc.org. All online audio is available on CD and cassette. To order copies of sermons and classes, please visit upc.org slash audio, email audio at upc.org, or call 206-524-7301, extension 117.